Take your Bibles again, please, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll read the first seven verses. And uh, before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for the rich deposit of truth that you have provided for us in your words. We pray, therefore, you would help us to understand it and to apply all that we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is speaking about his ministry uh, of the gospel, and he says in verse 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hearts, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, For Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In the last 10 days or so, we've been in a period of national mourning for the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And for many, if not most, her passing has been a profoundly jarring and emotional experience. Um, I don't know if you've watched this, but uh, the BBC has been live streaming the, the lying in state of the Queen's coffin. And, um, uh, you may have, and if you have, you, you will have spent some time, and you may have been moved by the just watching people as they they walk past uh, people who have waited hours to get into that hall in Westminster, and they have quietly approached the coffin, and they've stopped and turned, and maybe bowed or curtsied or uh, or put their hands together or something. Or said, said a few words. And uh, some with tears in their eyes. Uh, a p- profoundly moving experience. Um, a restrained expression. Very British. <laughs> but, a very res- but there were many other nationalities that have been coming. Um, but a very restrained and yet genuine expression of grief. Uh, last week the, the Banner of Truth... Uh, uh, website, Banner of Truth publishes uh, Christian books and magazines, a magazine. Um, they published an article called uh, The Meaning of Monarchy. It was an editorial piece, so it was an anonymous. And it made the comment that the reason that the death of Queen Elizabeth is so jarring is because, quote, we instinctively feel that a good reign should not come to an end. But the article goes on from there to observe that this feeling that we have, 
is actually an echo of a deeper spiritual dynamic within people. A yearning for something that we have lost. And what is that yearning for? To quote the conclusion of the article, it says, to paraphrase, this is quoting the article, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself a desire for a monarchy without equal or, or end, like and yet unlike every earthly dynasty, is it unreasonable to assume that I was made to be subject of such a kingdom? It's a very C.S. Lewis kind of thing to say. If I have a desire for something, isn't that evidence that the thing you desire actually exists? If you desire an unending king or queen, isn't that evidence that you, the thing that you really desire does exist but you can't see it? You see, there's a yearning in the human heart that has become evident in this period of national mourning for a king who will never die and a kingdom that will never end. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ holds out to the world. In this last week, we have seen the face of our dear departed queen everywhere. You've seen her face on billboards, you've seen her face on newspapers, on your social media feeds, on websites, and we don't want to forget our queen. It's it's the fear of anyone who has lost a loved one, that they forget the face of the one they loved. You sometimes hear that, the, the panic that arises sometimes when they can't remember what their loved one looked like. And so they surround themselves, people surround themselves with photos to remember the beloved departed. Remembering a face really matters to us. But again, that desire to remember a face is simply an echo of a deeper spiritual reality. That there is one whose face may be seen and adored forever. And of course I am talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, God is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about the face of Jesus Christ this morning. And I want to begin in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, point number one, to see the face of God was the desire of Old Testament saints. To see the face of God was the desire of Old Testament saints. Throughout the Old Testament, you find that the face of God is an important idea. But it's often hidden in the English translations. When you read of various Old Testament saints being in the presence of the Lord, the Hebrew word that is used to express being in the presence of the Lord is to be before the face of God. Literally, before the face of God. 
Now, of course, God is spirit, isn't he? He doesn't literally have a face. As our confession says, 2.1, Westminster Confession of Faith, if you're interested, uh, he is God without body, parts, or passions. And face is part of a body, so God doesn't literally have a face. But it's a Hebrew metaphor, it's a a figure of speech that is used throughout the Old Testament to convey the idea that everyone moves and is before the face of God and it has this idea that you're always under God's scrutiny, that God is always facing you, that he sees you, that he knows you. And he knows you inside out. You are under his eye, to use another metaphor. And that he brings, because you're under his eye, he brings you help, if you'll ask for it. But he also brings accountability as well for your actions. Now there is a problem of being before the face of God. And it's caused by our sin. Uh, Immediately after that first sin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 7, the sin happened. And then 3, 8, Genesis 3, 8. What did Adam and Eve do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. Literally, they hid themselves from the face of God. They were ashamed of their sin and their guilt. And they wanted to hide from before the face of God. Isn't that, doesn't that, doesn't that happen when you're, if you're a child and you're upset? You know you've done something wrong and you've upset your, your parents. What do you want to do? You want to hide your face. You don't want to see the, the countenance of your, your parents as they discover what you've done. The shame before the face of God. And that's a problem for all sinners, isn't it? We don't want to come face to face with God because of our our shame, the shame of our sin. And if necessary, people will say that God doesn't exist, so we try and wish away the problem. The face of God. But God, of course, has not left people in their sins. All the way through the Bible, God is gracious to sinners and he provides a way for them to have their guilt and their shame removed. And it's by God's grace that 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 face-to-face fellowship can be restored with God. In other words, it's possible for people like you and me to come before the face of God again. Indeed, it was God's constant assurance that you're before the face of God as Christian people. Uh, For example, I mean, at at the end of our evening service, we always close with... almost always close with the ironic blessing. In Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his face, literally the same word. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The face of God comes to his, his beloved people. And God is able to bring peace, 
wholeness, restoration. His face, when he shows his face, he builds his people up and establishes them. And so because of that, and knowing that there is blessing to be had before the face of God, so you have Psalm 27, which we sang earlier. David writes about how he's surrounded by all his enemies. And what does he want most of all? Verses 7 and 8. Hear, O God, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, "Seek seek my face. My heart says to you, says David. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. The longing of the saint to be before the face of God, to know his grace and his blessing and his help and his love, to be before the face of God. And so you see, within the Bible, the Old Testament, you have this warm encouragement of God to seek his face. And the cry of response that he will seek it. With all his might. Seek the face of God. Seek the face of God. So the face of God becomes a place of of great blessing for all those who have come to trust him. And I wonder if you have come to trust him today. Do you know that you are invited to come and trust him and to seek his face? To come into his presence and be blessed by him. Well, I want to move on from that to begin to think about Jesus Christ because God eventually did obtain a face, a literal face, as God became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, along with the rest of his body, had a face, a human face. And that face of Jesus Christ, secondly, is a face that mattered. The Bible has a lot to say about Jesus' face, the New Testament and the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the first thing to say is that it's a, it was a, a sad face. <coughs> Isaiah 50, uh, 52.14, speaking prophetically of the servant who would come. He said his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Isaiah 53, 3 says he was a man of sorrows. Why? Why was Jesus a man of sorrows? Well, there's a deep sadness about the world into which he came. And as he walked into it and as he met people from all walks of life, He felt the sadness of the the world around him. We get the wrong idea if we think that somehow Jesus came into the world floating six inches above everyone else and with a, a kind of supercilious smirk on his face saying, I've got this sorted. He's a man of sorrows. You you could see it in his face. The burdens that he was bearing. If you were to look at him, you would see a man. With sorrow etched on his face. And you would be struck. If you were there. You would have been struck by the the beautiful sorrow. Upon his brow. So it's a sad face. But it's also secondly a, a face of 
character and purpose. Jesus began his earthly ministry in Galilee to the north. But when the time came, he turned south and Luke says in Luke 9.15, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. That's that's an expression to, to convey a sense of purpose and determination. Jesus set his face to the future. He had come to die. He'd come to die for the sins of his people, to free them from the bondage to their uh, slavery of sin and to reconcile them to God and himself. And he would do whatever it took to, to achieve it. And if you are one of his disciples with him and you heard Jesus making his plans, you only had to look at his face to see that sense of purpose, determination. This is what I've come to do. No doubt. Certainty. Jesus was gentle, but he was a a man of character. And who wouldn't want to follow such a man? So it's a sad face, but a a face of character and purpose. (coughs) It was also an abused face. When Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem, we are told, Matthew 26, 67, they spit, then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. An abused face. That beautiful face, full of sorrows, full of purpose. And yet, there were those who would abuse it. There were some who didn't want to follow Jesus. And their only response to Jesus is to abuse him, to spit, to slap, to make his face a punch bag until it is swollen and bruised. And there are people today who would gladly do that to Jesus. The more they see of him, the more they hear of him, the more they want to abuse him. Yet if you're a Christian today, Then you'll think about that and realize that he went through all of this for you. He endured for you. That he suffered this and more so that you might be free of your guilt and your shame. An abused face that would eventually in its swollen and disfigured state be wrapped in the shrouds of death. And he'd be laid in a tomb. An abused face. But finally, thirdly, fourthly, (laughs) under the second point. If you're a Christian, you'll see that face again. Not an abused face, but a glorified face. John tells us, 1 John 3, 2, When he appears, we shall see him as he is. And what will his face be like then? Well, John gives us a description of what he saw in a vision of the risen, ascended Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. A glorified face. Glorious to behold. Plus, we couldn't even look too, too long because it's so glorious. A glorious face. 
Why has he changed so much? Why is it glorious now? Because he's risen from the dead. He's won a great victory for his people over death. He's now the victorious Savior. He is now the glorified Savior, ascended into heaven. And all the weight of the sorrows that were upon his brow have given way to the joy of the great assembly of his people saved. For the joy set before him endured the cross. And now he's in his state of joy. And this is what we have to look forward to. to Seeing Jesus face to face. To see him. That when we die or when Christ appears and he will come. All those who are in him will see his face and be glad forever. Forever. A face that will never leave us. So isn't that something to look forward to with eager anticipation? Of course. But there's more. As with everything in the Christian life, we do not, you know, we don't just go around telling people that, you know, the gospel is, you know, pie in the sky when you die. It doesn't change anything here, but, you know, there's pie to come. <laughs> there's more now. Whatever the benefits of salvation are that we look forward to at Christ's return, we also get a taste of it here and now. We get a taste of it here and now. And isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6? That light shining out of darkness that has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At last, at 12 o'clock, we get to our verse. This morning. Just this morning. We may see the face of Jesus Christ today. How so? Well, of course, Paul is not speaking here about a special vision of Jesus as such, like the one that John got in Revelation. He's not talking about that. But he is speaking about something else. He's speaking about preaching the gospel. And so verses 5 and 6 that we read says this, For we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for, for Jesus' sake. And it tells us something very important about the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word today in ordinary churches, that God uses the preaching of Christ Jesus in churches. And in the streets around the world to bring this new light to darkened sinners that they may see the face of Jesus Christ, not literally, but they get a sense of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God uses the preaching of Christ to bring this new light into the darkened minds of sinners. And as it were, through the preaching of the gospel in churches and streets and so on, God is leading a break-in into the dungeons where prisoners are held in darkness, where the God of this world is pushed aside and the streaming gracious light of Jesus Christ comes into their lives and fills the space and leads them into glory. 
This is our Jesus. And notice the, the depth of the work of this light from Jesus Christ. It's light into our hearts. It's not light shining upon us. It's light shining into us. Within us. Profound change into the deepest parts of our being. So that when a person discovers the light of Jesus Christ in the gospel. They are never the same again. It affects your mind. It affects your will. It affects your affections. The things you love. It affects everything about you. You're never the same again. This is a profound work that God does. And it's in fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. Coming true in the proclamation of the gospel. A verse I seem to be reading a lot. read it last week at baptism of one of our covenant children, Malcolm. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give your heart, you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see the profound change that God brings about as, it, as the spirit of God comes and applies the word of God to men and women. God will cause us to love the Lord and to walk in his ways. It changes us. And it's in this way that gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You preach Christ. You placard Christ. You proclaim him. Declare his glory and his magnificent work. And people see the face of Jesus Christ. And they come to him. They see, And in that face they see something of the glory of God. How do we know things? We get this knowledge of the glory of God. How do we know things? It's a big topic. Philosophers spend a lot of time in epistemology, thinking about knowledge and the theory of knowledge and all the rest of it. Three kinds of knowledge I think Paul has in view here. Firstly, there's a presumption of a God that exists, who made the world and has revealed himself in general revelation and in special revelation in the scriptures. That's one kind of knowledge. Secondly, there's the recorded evidence of of history which presents to us the dreadful corruption of mankind and yet also presents to us his amazing grace in sending his son into the world to die upon a cross. The history of it. Of his saving work. Thirdly. All the rational deductions. That can be made about the identity. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who was he? Not just a man. But God come in flesh. When you put all that together. This is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and it bursts into our lives. This is the kind of knowledge that leads to certainty, to assurance, to maturity, to confidence in the Christian life. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
Let me just finish with a few implications. Three implications. Number one, we need to know who Christ is. We need to know who he is. We began thinking this morning about our queen and how she she had gone from us and how jarring that was and upsetting that has been to so many people. But that desire for the permanency, indeed eternally secure certainties, cannot be found in an earthly monarch. Rather, a monarch, if anything, only points to someone greater. To Jesus Christ, the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. And we need to know him. We need to discover him. Is it enough to know that he was a historical figure 2,000 years ago? Is it enough to know that he had a mother called Mary and a father called Joseph and they lived in Nazareth and then Capernaum? Do these things really define him? No, he's much more than that. He's the very Son of God, generated from eternity, the only begotten God come in flesh to dwell amongst us. Now that's all of that is simply stated, but it takes a lifetime to get your head around it. So we need to know Jesus Christ. We need to know him. Second implication, we need to know what he's done. Why did he come into the world? Why did he come into the world in the way that he did? Born of a virgin. Why was it necessary for him to live a sinless life? A perfect life under the law? Why did he die? Why did he act as though he knew not only that he was going to die, but that he must die? Why? Why did he rise from the dead? Why does that matter for our salvation? Why did Jesus ascend to heaven after he had risen? Why does that matter? Why is it necessary for him to do that? And for us to continue in the Christian life. All of these things matter. We need to understand what he has done. Because in doing that we can live better in him. And thirdly, we just need to know what he's like. We need to know what he's like. John says that he was full of grace and truth. Shouldn't we then study him to see him as uh, as he is so that we don't make up false mental pictures of him? I think having a mental picture is probably unavoidable being created human beings. But we need to have that shaped by what the scripture says. As we study him. And these are, these are questions for all Christians. And they're questions for preachers as well. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What's he like? It's through the ministry of the words that God does this amazing work. Of showing us the glory of his son. And thereby changing us and enabling us to grow. The preaching of the word. By which we see Come to a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this revelation we have of Jesus. One day we shall see him as he is, but today we see him, yes, darkly, as through a glass darkly, but we see enough of him to see the glory of God in his face. Help us, Lord, to look in his face, to see him and to desire him and to spend all our days seeking him in his face. In his name we pray. Amen.